Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. Melbourne has lost many favourite landmarks over its history, and today I'm going to delve into the story of one of its more wacky architectural icons, the Eltham Barrel. James Lesh will open Melbourne A to Z at the letter P for Port Melbourne and have a chat to Janet Belitho about what the suburb means to her. To start us off, here's Helen Morgan in conversation with Amber Evangelista, curator at the Victoria Police Museum, talking about the centenary of women in policing in Victoria. Welcome to another My Marvellous Melbourne On The Beat segment. Today, we are literally going on the beat, following the footsteps of some of Melbourne's first female police officers. I'm Helen Morgan, an archivist and historian of Australian women. With me is Amber Evangelista, an historian who worked on a history of women in Victoria Police and curated the exhibition Agents of Change, 100 Years of Women in Victoria Police. 100 years. So that means the first female police officers in Melbourne started work in 1917, during the latter years of the First World War. How many women were there and what were they doing? Amber. So in July 1917, we had our first two women, Madge Connor and Elizabeth Beers, uh, employed at Victoria Police. They were initially employed as police agents, so not necessarily police uh, in the way that we understand it now. They had no powers of arrest, no uniform, and they were on half the pay of a constable. Their role was envisaged to be something like a social worker, really. They would help at-risk women and neglected children, keep an eye on areas of the city and aspects of city life that might lure young women into a life of vice. Prostitution, gambling and drinking were all considered major sources of concern in inner-city Melbourne, with its lanes and alleys considered a hotbed for sin and temptation. Police were battling underground gambling rings, opium dens, sly grog shops, houses of ill repute, which we now know as brothels, and the evils of drink. Popular opinion blamed all of these for a perceived rise in fallen women and neglected children. And policewomen were considered a potential solution to that. Their lists of duties were to include protecting women, girls and children, assisting appearances in court, patrolling the streets, and uh, this is a direct quote, protecting youth from social evils and dealing with cases of girls who have fallen. Uh, this very vague list of duties meant the two policewomen saw many uh, very different aspects of the city, from slums of Burke Street and Little Lawn, entertainment districts and central parks where youths might congregate. What an enormous task and area of coverage for only two women. Do you think the policewomen themselves viewed the city in that way? How long did Madge, Connor and Elizabeth Beers remain in the force? They both uh, remained in the force for some years, uh, many years between the two of them. After a year of being on the street, Beers retired and was replaced by Nell Davidson, a staunch Salvation Armyist. Nell and Madge both served for many years, uh, but I think they were quite different in their approach. From my readings of events, records and uh, Victoria Police archives, I see Madge Connor, who was one of the original two, and Nell Davidson as very different personalities, and I think they saw the city very differently. Nell was known for her work in the slums and her welfare work with women and children. She did assist with other cases, uh, including some work with the plainclothes branch, busting quack doctors, 
a couple of times some fortune tellers as well. But she did spend most of her time attempting to prevent girls and young women from going astray. Records from the Salvation Army, where she continued to work at the same time uh, as Victoria Police, portray her patrolling Melbourne streets for wayward women. So on one occasion, she separated two women from some fast-looking young men and demanded they take her to their lodgings, tell her where they'd been drinking and whether they had sufficient means to live, which at the time was actually uh, an arrestable offence. So she apparently told the girls they were going to a way that leads to misery and had embarked on a life of shame. Although that only been in the city a fortnight, in the end, Nell had the girls taken to a home. Uh, she was also known to patrol the docks, keeping an eye out for women who might be acting inappropriately with sailors. <laughs> uh, she also declared that although she worked an eight-hour day, her duties were never over, and she was known to patrol the streets and laneways at night on alert. I must say, Nell sounds formidable. What about Madge? I think Madge was quite a different sort of character. Uh, in fact, there's a great photo um, of Madge and there's a very different photo of Nell and they're from a very similar time period, but it looks like they could be 20 years apart just mm. by the way they're dressed and I think that's a, um, a really interesting way to sort of picture them. Madge's view of the city was, uh, in my opinion, probably a little bit different Research suggests she was less driven by moral outcry and religion than Nell and more interested in other aspects of policing. She did conduct the same work assisting women and children, but she really displayed a very early enthusiasm for the more sort of exhilarating sides of policing. She was very excited by busting fortune tellers, dodgy doctors, sly grog sellers and opium sellers. I think that was sort of a, more along her line. Because of this, I think she saw the city very differently while Nell might have seen the slums and entertainment districts as these sort of sad pits of poverty and vice, I think Madge was more interested in the gritty, fast Melbourne underground, the working-class houses and businesses in Little Lawn, the theatres, brothels and nightlife of Burke Street East, street gambling in Little Burke Street or opium dens near Lonsdale Street. I guess they both had a lot to prove being trailblazers. How long was it before they were joined by more women on the force? It was quite a slow process, really. By the mid-1920s, Madge and Nell had proved their worth uh, and they'd been joined by two other policewomen, Mary Cox and Ellen Cook. So there were just four of them for that whole Melbourne area. I think the four women started to prove their worth working beyond welfare or what was deemed women's work. So I do think they started to see a little bit more of that other criminal side of Melbourne. In 1924, they were actually sworn in as police with full powers, including powers of arrest. So this actually meant that their work could take them beyond uh, welfare reports, looking at slum houses, brothels and docks. It started to carry them to industrial suburbs like Richmond, Fitzroy and Collingwood. Around this time, Madge was stationed in Fitzroy and Nell went to South Melbourne. So their beat was really expanding. Nell eventually retired in 1940, but Madge left in 1929 due to some complications around her date of birth, uh, which still remains a bit of a mystery. We don't know which documents are the correct ones regarding when she was born. So she was forced into a compulsory retirement. She did go on, though, to run her own private investigative business, and her ads can be dug up in old newspapers. Hmm. So things were changing, and women now had powers of arrest, you mentioned that they started seeing more of the criminal side of Melbourne. 
What do you think was the most significant change to how policewomen experienced the city at this time? Well, obviously the world underwent some pretty major changes when World War II broke out and policing really wasn't exempt from that. The policing needs of the city changed dramatically when Australia went to war. We had brownouts, more sailors in the ports, increased anxiety and, of course, lots of economic uncertainty. All these factors led to worries about increased crime. Police were involved in investigating potential war threats, so the pressures on them were really increasing, and we had a huge portion of the workforce leave to serve overseas. So to fill their places, Victoria Police followed the lead of organisations like the Army and the Air Force and started to employ women. So we had uh, what was called auxiliary police women who could do work that freed up policemen for what they thought was real police work, Uh, and over 200 women were employed uh, in the period between the 40s and the 50s. So although these auxiliary policewomen had no arrest powers, they weren't uh, necessarily real police uh, women in the true sense of the word, this really was the first time Victoria Police had seen a major influx of women into the workforce. They had a neat uniform with a tunic and a skirt, little peaked cap, and the impact of this must have been absolutely enormous. I can really imagine a city where the sight of a policewoman was rare and suddenly there are these uniformed women staffing police stations, operating radios, working at headquarters. Uh, in this sort of climate, policewomen's roles really expanded. And there were some real game changes in the mix by this point. Uh, in particular, there's one woman named Elva Carr who's really worth a very special mention. Her passion for the job altered the way policewomen worked and the way Melburnians saw policewomen. She campaigned for a chance to prove that they were capable of more than just welfare work and asked for permission to establish a women's street patrol. The proposed squad would patrol Melbourne streets in a police car. And the chief commissioner actually approved this squad and even a uniform for it. So for the first time, sworn policewomen had a uniform. Suddenly they were visible, they were there, their presence was really noticeable. And of course, with that came access to a police car. They took to their beat for the very first time in 1948, driving around the city with their eye out for trouble. Where did they patrol? They oversaw the CBD and its boundaries, driving down alleyways and trouble-prone areas, but they were also known to drive along the banks of the Yarra, so not just in the CBD, but also in surrounding suburbs like Richmond and Abbotsford, often looking for brawls that broke out along the riverbanks. Collingwood and Carlton were probably also favourite trouble spots, and I can really imagine the women in their patrol car cruising through the back streets of Melbourne and slowing right down to a crawl when the car caught some mischief in its headlights. (laughs) Must have been quite a sight. (laughs) One policewoman I spoke to, former Sergeant Eileen Rainford, who joined just a few years after the start of the street patrol, still remembers the look she got driving a patrol car down Swanston Street. She said people would stop and stare at her and that she was a bit of a novelty. And it's such a great image, Eileen in her cap and uniform behind the wheel of a police car, sitting at the lights on Swanston Street with onlookers staring at her. So, any more firsts on the horizon? With the 70s around the corner, I'm guessing there would have been. Yes. So, the next major period of change was the 70s. So, those major civil rights and gender equality movements around the world, they had a huge impact on women in policing. So, with such an energised social atmosphere, it was really impossible that policing wouldn't be affected. Gender equality was really in the spotlight there. We had our female recruits increase and police women started breaking into new fields. 
So to paint the picture, during the early 70s, the number of police women more than doubled in four years, and the first women finally made it into really specialised areas like the Mounted Branch and the Drug Squad. We also have our first women to ducks detective training school and our first woman awarded a Queen's Gallantry Medal. There were still plenty of barriers, though. They received little or no self-defence instruction, were not always armed and received different training to men. They were also issued handbags with their uniforms. And one policewoman told me it would have only been useful with a brick in it. (laughs) So handbags is self-defence then? Yes, something like that. Uh, In fact, I did have one policewoman tell me that the self-defence training she got was poke them in the eye. Uh, stick your high heel down on their shoe and run. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, So they certainly continued to show some determination and persistence, though. As they transferred to different units and squads, they were moving away from their traditional Russell Street Women Police Division. Many did still work in the city. I've heard one great story about a policewoman being sent to break up a bra-burning protest at Flinders Street And she actually joined in instead. Yay! (laughs) Apparently she took one spare bra to burn. (laughs) Uh, So others were working further out um, in areas like Frankston and Mornington, as well as in Springvale. For instance, one policewoman in the drug squad worked undercover drug busts in Sunbury. She would go into locations before the actual raid to gather intelligence, uh, and on one occasion she was dressed in a bikini and a caftan for disguise, and another time in flares. So I quite like the image of that, drug busts and Sunbury and a caftan. <laughs> well, I can only say hooray for the 70s. What impact did this decade in particular have on women in policing in Melbourne? So in the late 70s, legislation finally came in, uh, which enshrined some basic gender equality. In 1977, we got the Equal Opportunity Act, which outlawed workplace discrimination on the grounds of sex or marital status. This was pretty massive. Women suddenly had the right to equal opportunities for transfers of promotions, the right to marry and to remain in the force, and the right to receive the same training and resources their male counterparts. So they finally got that self-defence training. There was even talk that policewomen might be allowed to wear pants, (laughs) although it did take until the 80s. Although it took until 1978 until the Act was implemented at Victoria Police, it had pretty widespread effects. The Women Police Division changed to community policing and began to employ police of both genders. So in terms of women's experiences of Melbourne, the whole city and the whole state was really open to them at that point, whether it was working on organised crime in the CBD welfare-based work in the suburbs or investigating major crimes on the city fringe, all those different layers of the city, those different locations and little metropolitan microcosms, uh, all those different lenses in which we see the city, all that was open to them. Now, I should say, uh, when I'm talking about this, it is really important to remember that back then, the pool of policewomen was not nearly as culturally diverse as it is now. It took until the 1980s until the first Aboriginal policewoman, Tarina Martin, was employed by Victoria Police, and it was around that time that we had larger amounts of policewomen beginning to emerge who openly identified as being from different cultural backgrounds. So to bring us to today, the organisation now has thousands of women working as police and in the public service, and that's a huge way from just two in 1917. Our city has changed immeasurably since Madge, Elizabeth and Nell took to the beat a century ago. Thanks, Amber. I'm intrigued by a lot in this story, From Madge opening up her own detective agency in the 30s to that 1970s act of female gallantry, 
and I'll be heading straight on over to the digitised newspapers in Trove to look up some of these names. It's worth hopping over to the Victoria Police Museum website, and I also recommend Googling Victorian Collections, Victoria Police Museum, to see a great range of photographs relating to our chat. It's been a long grind of a week at work, but tonight you can let your hair down. What with the smorgasbord and the hot carvery, Russian eggs, Hungarian goulash, the happy thrum of hundreds of other guests out on the weekend, beer jugs brimming, the band on stage, the night getting into full swing. There's a man, let's call him Klaus, feet tapping and body starting to sway to the rhythm of the accordion and trumpet, his eyes sparkling at his wife, Lanelda, as he takes her hand and leads her to the dance floor, a half-jump step to the left, a short half-step to the right, and their polka is underway. Perhaps these Tyrolean sounds call to mind the years before he came. Just a baby in Berlin on the cusp of the war, the bombs falling, his mother Lizzie growing vegetables to feed the family, then pushing all their worldly possessions in a handcart when the Soviets attacked, then his father Paul, an aircraft mechanic, chancing on an ad in the paper looking for skilled workers for Australia. Paul went on ahead. Lizzie and the two young boys followed in 1953 on the SS Fairsea out of Bremerhaven, a floating mercy vessel carrying nearly 1,500 migrants and displaced souls, over a 1,000 Germans as well as hundreds of Greeks picked up at Piraeus. A contingent of over 200 got off at Frio, destined for the Holden Holding Centre. Over 700 were bound for Bonagilla. Lizzie and the boys, care of P. Frankie, Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Authority, Jindabyne Dam, via Cooma, New South Wales. By 1960, they'd moved down to Melbourne. Klaus met Linelda at the Altona Squash Club and they married in 1965. Klaus worked hard six days a week at his Snowy River Motor Body Works opposite the West Footscray Cemetery. And this Saturday night felt so good in so many ways with his raven-haired wife, the quickening rhythm, roll out the barrel, jumping round the dance floor to the polka classics, leaning back and looking up at the ceiling of the barrel, spinning round and round and round. Did I say the ceiling of a barrel? Suspend disbelief for a moment. There's Jonah in the belly of a giant whale. There's Alice in a giant wonderland. And then there's those lucky patrons of the Eltham Barrel, who for two decades from 1968 were able to enjoy the delights of what would have to have been one of Melbourne's quirkiest venues. The pathway to the Eltham Barrel is circuitous. I never went there, I'd never heard of it in fact, until a year or two ago when I happened to pick up a copy of the 1973 Diamond Valley sketchbook in a second-hand bookshop in Newcastle. The Rigby series was published between the mid-1960s and the early 1980s, slim little hardcover guides to buildings and places across Australasian cities and towns. They had a heritage kind of feel, 
showcasing historic hotels, homesteads, churches, but also bridges, railways, statues and parks, and buildings new as well as old. Written by teacher Brian McKinley, with drawings by Graham Hawley, the Diamond Valley edition ranged from the Griffin House in Heidelberg, Parade College at Bandura, the Mernda Mechanics Institute, the old bridge at Greensborough, Weller's Pub on the road to Kangaroo Ground, and the Pound Bend Tunnel at Warrandyte. But it was an entry in Eltham that caught my eye. Not Monsalvat or the mud brick houses, but the barrel Eltham. The barrel, we read, is situated on top of the sloping hillside above Eltham. It can easily lay claim to being the largest barrel restaurant in the world and the only one of its kind in Australia. The huge structure of the barrel towers over the long winding road that leads to Kangaroo Ground. If the barrel were to be filled with beer, instead of its many patrons, it would hold close to two million gallons. Such a fact is remarkable, even in Melbourne, which is noted for its voluminous intake of that alcoholic beverage. OK, let's back up a bit. A multi-level, Bavarian-themed restaurant in Eltham with a crazy architectural style. And just how many other big-barrel restaurants were there in the world for this to be the largest? It's hard to get the origin story straight, but it might go something like this. Des Hill ran a tool-making business in Doncaster, and was inspired to commission the barrel by Bill Muller, a local band leader, who told him about the Durkheimer Reisenfuss restaurant, a giant barrel built in 1934 in Germany made from 200 spruce trees from the Black Forest. Renovated in 1958, it was the largest cask in the world, bigger even than the famous Great Heidelberg Tun in Heidelberg Castle, which was made in 1751 from 130 oak trees. Another version of the story is that Des Hill saw the giant German barrel himself on a business trip. Believe it or not, there's quite a history of giant barrels in Europe. On the back of a booming wine industry from the end of the 16th century, the nobility started to build large wine cellars with very large barrels to put in them. Mostly in Switzerland and Germany, this one in Mikulov Castle in the Czech Republic built in 1643, six metres long and five metres in diameter, bound with 22 steel hoops. And there's the Strasbourg wine barrel of 1472 and the Tübingen barrel of 1546 with a volume of over 84,000 litres and the giant Groningen barrel of 1598. One huge barrel had a platform on the top and a gazebo with room for six couples to dance. But the largest of all time, though never of course actually filled with wine or beer, was the Eltham Barrel, 26 metres high with a volume of 8 million litres. However it was that the idea came to Australia, Des Hill forked out $250,000 for construction and Bill Muller brought along the music. That's him beaming in a photo in the Age newspaper on the 16th of November 1968, dressed in lederhosen and Tyrolean hat, beer stein in one hand, violin in the other. Eugène Mercier's giant 20-tonne champagne barrel that was pulled by 18 horses and 24 bulls through the streets of Paris for the Exposition Universelle in 1889 was nearly 20 years in the planning and construction. The largest barrel in the world, surprisingly, was built in Eltham 
in only about four months. The engineering was computed by William Lyle Irwin of Irwin, Johnston and Breeden, consulting engineers of South Melbourne. Bill Irwin was a civil engineer who specialised in bridges, but his CV also included the Swimming Centre for the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, the Maya Music Bowl and the Futuristic Academy of Science Shine Dome in Canberra, both opened in 1959. So a giant barrel was a cinch, just another day at the office. Roof loading, frame design, balcony cantilever, diagonal bracing. The architectural plans came out of the office of John F. Tipping, architects of Borwin, and the project architect was his associate, Graham M. MacDonald, who signed the May 1968 working drawings, longitudinal sections, elevations and site plans. The specifications were received by the Department of Health at the end of July 1968 and approved by the end of August. Des Hill and his wife Thelma applied for approval of the opening of the Barrel Restaurant Research as a public building on the 1st of September. An advertisement on the 27th of September put the call out for carpenters for the Barrel's construction, continuous work, overtime available, and a site inspection in late November showed most of the work completed. An aged newspaper article trumpeted, they're nearly ready to roll at Eltham's Barrel Restaurant. Des Hill was granted a liquor licence on the 19th, and 300 guests packed the Barrel's inaugural night in the hilly wilds of Eltham on the 29th of November, as reported in the newspaper the next day. While a genuine Bavarian band played Austrian waltzes, the first-night diners downed foaming steins of Dortmund Ritter, one of Germany's best and heaviest brews, while the less adventurous settled for Carlton and Courage. The menu included tasty Teutonic tidbits. Although the entire staff is either Swiss, German or Austrian extraction, the owner is a Melbourne engineer, Mr Des Hill. He is the only man in the organisation who can't speak German. So the management took this German thing pretty seriously. By December, the barrel was advertising for waitresses, German-speaking only, with good appearance, wanted for new restaurant. Good pay, uniforms supplied, meals provided, transport arranged. They also wanted drink waiters, young men with experience, though German language skills and good looks weren't specified for the blokes. The architectural establishment, on the other hand, wasn't so sure about what they technically called mimetic architecture. Cross-section, a kind of trade digest sent out to architects and builders from the University of Melbourne's architecture department, looked down its nose at what it saw as a freak design. Public taste is like a rubber balloon, it pontificated. You push it down in one place, it pops up somewhere else. 1967 to 68 saw the successful demise of a plan to build a 250-foot-high replica of a gin bottle on the Nepean Highway near Melbourne. Architects, critics and apparently the client breathed a grateful sigh of relief. Undaunted, the public desire for novelty has been assuaged by this barrel near Eltham, architect John F. Tipping, builder E.J. McGee. Hardened alcoholics speeding down the main road at research may believe the millennium has come. Straight-laced architects may have feared the apocalypse, but the punters loved it, and Des Hall had bookings through to 1970. 
The barrel itself was an eclectic mix of new and old. Some recycled convict-made bricks and timber from the Cliveden mansions in Jollymont, originally the city pad of landowner, philanthropist and parliamentarian Sir William Clark, which was demolished in 1968 to make way for the Hilton Hotel. Bits and pieces of stained glass and joinery may have been salvaged by Will and the Wrecker for the grand dining hall of the Hilton at the top end of town, but some of the Oregon framework made its way out to the city's fringe. The metal hoops came from Wyala, and the giant reclining barrel with its two-way curvature was clad with Swedish stramet board, compressed straw insulation panels two inch thick and four feet wide, finished with marine ply on the exterior and natural wood chip on the inside. Externally at ground level, random stonework beaching provided a kind of visual cradle in case you were worried that the whole thing might roll down the hill. A half-hour drive from town, you came off the Eltham Yarra Glen Road next to Danson's Nursery, up the driveway, parked the car, and then entered the barrel from a fancy-sounding porte-cochere, a porch where cars could stop to drop off passengers. On this floor was the main dining room and a mezzanine cocktail lounge, a women's powder room, food hoists behind a server covered with ornamental arches, a bandstand and a dance floor. A lower level housed a private function room for small weddings or private parties, a bridal change room and the kitchen, pantry and cellar. And on the top balcony there was a gallery dance floor, another dining room, liquor and food servery and a dumb waiter from the kitchen below. The three-storey restaurant had a supposed capacity of 8 million litres. But in terms of people, it was initially registered for 190 patrons, soon up to 290. Jack Tipping had passed away in March 1969, but his office worked on interior alterations that were being made to the barrel in 1972. Things got into a kind of swing. Under the watchful eye of stag's heads mounted on the wall, the imported German beer flowed. Couples danced to Sid Molnar and his Austrian boys. Kids were scared or charmed in equal measure by Bonzo the Barrel Clown and Fritz the Friendly Bear at Sunday lunch. It's a smorgasbord, said the brochure, so eat as much as you like. And their parents did, wolfing down roll mops, cocktail onions, fried chicken, Leberkäse, cold cuts, fresh corn and barrel pancakes served with maple syrup, a speciality of the house. Seven years after it opened, someone dobbed the management into the health department. Licensed for just 290, the brochure boasted that it could hold 400, but in November and December 1975, there were over 500 people crammed in some nights, sitting on the chairs and queuing for the toilets. While the barrel architecture was certainly a novelty, the themed restaurant thing had a long history. When it came to decor, it was common earlier in the 20th century for Melbourne's tea rooms to be inspired by the allure of the exotic and the foreign, whether that be from Europe or from Asia. Caterers had long employed ambience, gimmickry and nostalgia in shades of comforting retro or alluring modern to entice repeat patronage. The Mia Mia Tea Rooms in Collins Street advertised its atmosphere of an old Dutch kitchen. In the 1920s, its waitresses were dressed in Dutch blue and white lace caps in peasant fashion. 
Some tea rooms played on the café chantant or singing café concept. Others drew on Chinese or Japanese stereotypes in presenting an exotic version of other cultures. So 1920s Melbourne had the Jin Jin and the Geisha tea rooms, and the cultural othering served to reinforce the dominance of the Anglo-majority. When the Eltham Barrel opened half a century later, there was a pretty eclectic choice of culturally-themed dining in Melbourne. The Dining Out Guide in the Age, in February 1969, laid out some of the options. There was the Lamplighter Restaurant in Burke Street, with its atmosphere of America's golden era. You could hear nightly folk songs at Jeff Brooks' Steak Cave in Queen Street. You could listen to Middle Eastern music while you dined at King Hiram's in Ligon Street. Have a quiet dinner at Melbourne's first rooftop restaurant, top of the town, on the 20th floor of the National Mutual Centre in Collins Street. There was Melbourne's first all-Spanish restaurant, Raphael's in Little Burke Street. Or the delightful Persian atmosphere of Omar Khayyam's in Turak Road, South Yarra. Or further down the same road, the delightful old-world Edwardian atmosphere and decor of Pickwick. Or you could try the prime rib beef at the Stagecoach Inn in Queen's Road, where you could dine and dance in an early Australian colonial atmosphere to the renowned music of the Four Coachmen. There were other classic smorgasbords and themed restaurants. Flight Deck opened in the mid-1960s on Turak Road in South Yarra in the form of a Boeing 727 interior and the Swagman in Ferntree Gully from 1972 to 1991. Music historian John Whiteoak traces a particular Bavarian-style musical entertainment in Australia back to its 19th century roots in the German-speaking community's involvement in the early wine and hotel industry as well as Liedertafels, Umpa bands and slap-dancing traditions. Critical to this is the German concept of Gemutlichkeit, which roughly translates as a state of geniality and sociability, a brotherhood, and yeah, it's a blokey kind of thing, a brotherhood born of communal eating, drinking and singing. In the particular case of Melbourne, the emergence of German-themed restaurants mapped onto the vicissitudes of post-war immigration. By the end of the 1950s, White Oak writes, subtly or overtly German-themed restaurants and cabarets began to appear as part of a vibrant continental venue scene where European migrants, nostalgically seeking continental food, entertainment and atmosphere, rub shoulders with Anglo-Australians wishing to experience something adventurous in food and entertainment. Whitehead explains this as a kind of hyper-ethnicity with a very stereotyped and touristic flavour. In this, Melbourne excelled. Hofbrau House, a Bavarian restaurant in Market Lane beside the Bercy Cinema and opened in 1968, featured Stein beer, Hofbrau trio music, songs, gemuklikite waitresses dressed in diurnals, the traditional alpine pinafore dresses with low-cut blouse, puff sleeves and apron. There was the Cuckoo Restaurant in Alinda, opened in 1958, and the Umpa-style Rhineland Restaurant at 9 Drury Lane off Lonsdale Street from 1970 to 1980, where you could let Eddie's Lutty's ensemble serenade you with lingering violin music from Strauss or rousing drinking songs.
Eddie had indeed released an LP titled Rhineland Music in 1974 with favourite polkas and tangos like Roses of Tyrol and Vienna Bonbons, and he later played at the Cuckoo Restaurant. Then there were Salzburg and Edelweiss Austrian licensed restaurants in Heidelberg. The Christmas menu in 1974 boasted Jägersuper, Consomme Franz Joseph, Bismarck herrings, Matterhorn cutlets, Wiener Schnitzel and Tyrolean roast beef. At Edelweiss, kids would be lined up on Mother's Day, each holding a tuned cowbell, and on the signal from a fellow in Bavarian kit would belt out Edelweiss for all the mums in the room. In 1975, building lots in the Eltham Height Estate subdivision just down the road from the barrel were advertised as country-style living for city folks. The barrel certainly spruiked itself as Melbourne's newest swinging restaurant, but also and particularly an out-of-town dining experience. Forget the rat race and enjoy the best with people who know what they want. This is no gimmick and prices are reasonable. This is one of the many, many things that people like to remember. Mum and Dad going there on special nights. Eltham seemed so very far away. Families having all of their significant milestone celebrations there over many years. Kid-friendly family meals or smorgasbords as an alternative to the emergent fast food joints and advertised in the press along with Rob's Birthday Club at the Carousel in Albert Park, the Dorset Gardens Hotel in Croydon, the cuckoo in Alinda with yodelling thrown in, or the Villa Borghese in Kilsyth. Beer drinking and donut eating competitions, floor shows, theatre nights, fundraisers, car club lunches, joke nights, Q high school send-offs, masked balls, 18ths and 21sts, work dues and company Christmas parties, wedding breakfasts and wedding receptions. The Melbourne Bushwalkers Club holding their annual dinner, when they weren't at Edelweiss or the Swagman or the Cuckoo or the Baron of Beef in Sherbrooke. Teenagers learning to drive in the car park. The waitresses contending with rowdy crowds of men lifting up their skirts. Waiters folding hundreds of napkins for each evening service. Prawns with Thousand Island dressing, pork and apple sauce, the novelty of Black Forest cake. The Eltham Barrel, a nickname for a chubby kid in the schoolyard. Suburban mums and dads getting ideas, going back to their own kitchens and thinking, incorrectly, that it might be a good idea to bring the dinner out on a tray balanced on their heads, with inevitable consequences. Rethinking the sculling competitions after the introduction of random breath testing in 1976, or else rethinking driving there. Chefs like Greg Wilson and Swiss-born Rudy Forer, later the executive chef at the Hilton Hotel, the time when someone tarred and feathered the life-sized cardboard cutout of Bill Muller holding a beer stein in his outstretched hand, and it ended up as evidence in the Eltham court, to the hilarity of all. And the music, of course, the roll call of musicians in their lederhosen, Bill Muller, the original band leader and inspiration, his son Ernie Muller on guitar, Sid Molner on accordion, 
who also played at various times at Salzburg Lodge, the Hungarian Cultural Centre and the Cuckoo, Leslie Pursley on clarinet, Ron Hayden, who played the drums between 1975 and 1980, then went on to the Baron of Beef and the Society's Syncopators. And then there's the fire, which, despite the fire-resistant qualities of Stramat board, destroyed enough of the barrel on the evening of Sunday the 4th of June 1989 that there was an end to it. Fuel had been splashed on the walls, gas jets had been turned on in the kitchen, and there was a large hole in the cellar wall. The arsonist was never caught. So we're left with the memories of those who remember a night out at the barrel, as well as the owners and licensees, managers and workers. Frank Vogel, who went on to the Salzburg Lodge and Edelweiss, and who won the tender to open the Melba above the amphitheatre in the new city square in 1980. Brothers-in-law Peter Smith and Barry Jordan, who owned a barrel for about eight years up to the mid-1980s. Occasionally, the odd souvenirs come up on eBay, an Eltham barrel mug, an ashtray. Now there are houses on that block off Cowbar Road where the barrel once stood. The inscribed Eltham barrel beam that spanned the portico is now doing duty in someone's private home. But there's a Bring Back the Eltham Barrel group on Facebook. It was something of a phenomenon in its day. It's almost weirder now just imagining that such a thing ever existed. As a newspaper put it when it was sold in 1984, it sat high on a hill like a refugee from Mars. So let your mind's eye wander and you can see the orange glow of the inside light streaming out into the night through the cross-hatched timber frame like a comforting face. Listen carefully enough, and you might hear the strains of Bill Muller's band as a refugee from Europe swings his raven-haired wife across the dance floor and in each other's arms at the end of the week with all you can eat, beer steins overflowing. The past is the past, the future unknown. And right here and now, wrapped in the barrel's embrace, nothing else matters. Writing five decades ago, social critic Donald Horne identified Australia as the first suburban nation. Suburbanisation was the post-war byword, and also its urban tension. Urbanist Hugh Stretton wrote in defence of the suburb, suggesting that we must not, and I'll quote him, undervalue the family and neighbourly. So what better way to find out what makes Melbourne than by venturing into some of the suburbs where we live? I'm James Lesh, and today we'll kick off our Melbourne A to Z segment with the letter P, Port Melbourne. We're joined by Janet Belitho, a Port Melbourne resident and heritage activist. <laughs> I've been following Janet's organisation called Port Places for a couple of years, and I'm excited that she accepted my invitation to join us in the My Marvellous Melbourne studio today. Welcome, Janet. Hi, James. So tell us, Janet, what is your earliest memory of Port Melbourne? Well, I'm actually not from Port Melbourne at all. I'm originally from South Africa. And when we moved to Melbourne in 1986, we moved to Port Melbourne and I thought I'd arrived in paradise. Was there, was there a particular reason why you moved 
why your family or why yourself chose Portland? Oh, my husband and I moved from South Africa. It was the height of the apartheid era and mm. things were going from bad to worse. Steve Biko had just been murdered and um, so we left the country not knowing and we were fortunate enough after wandering the world for a little while to come to rest in Port Melbourne. Did you look at any other suburbs? Well, interesting with your introduction about the suburbs because we had lived in London before and we knew we wanted to be close to the city. In Johannesburg, I'd lived very close to town and so it was just I've always been an urban person and even though people might associate South Africa also with suburban, I've always been very, not just Inner urban has been my the place where I feel most at home. Since you moved to Port Melbourne in the in the late eighties, what are the greatest changes that you've seen in the suburb? Well, I think that Port Melbourne's changes have actually shaped my life because we arrived in Port Melbourne at a time when we didn't know, but others knew that it was on the cusp of a really major transformation. And so no sooner had we arrived in this little settled, what we thought was this little backwater, than it immediately began to embark on this great period of change. And I, so I've been witness, observer and documenter of that change ever since that time. So what are kind of some of the characteristics of that change? Are we Do we mean more density, new developments, the restoration of heritage places? Well, bear in mind that we only arrived here in 1986 and that was at the time of the crash in the 80s and so it was you know, post-industrial, all those industries that were so strongly associated with Port Melbourne, you know, the biscuits, the candles, you know, you name something, it was made in Port Melbourne. But by the 80s, all those factories were beginning, either had or were beginning to move out. And so that left huge swathes of Port Melbourne available for redevelopment. And this was the, t we lived opposite a former Navy site that belonged to the Commonwealth. And that was sold by the Commonwealth and made available for redevelopment. And there was also the huge um, planning saga that preceded the development of Beacon Cove. And so really from the mid-80s onwards, Port Melbourne was undergoing ceaseless redevelopment, which is, you know, just continuing at a lower rate now. Was some of this redevelopment regeneration? Was there the use of the, the heritage of the area in these developments or was Port Melbourne trying to lose its past? Oh, I think that's such an important question because... At that time, Port Melbourne had no planning controls to speak of because no one ever wanted to come and live there. You know, if you in the earlier than the 80s, you know, people were moving out of Port Melbourne rather than in. And so there wasn't the appreciation perhaps of heritage that there is today. You know, it looked run down, a lot of it looked derelict. And so there was the emergence of the discussion about what should be retained and what should be lost. 
And in the redevelopment of the Beacon Cove area, this was a bitter contest, as you can imagine, because there were many loved features of that landscape. There was the mission to seafarers, mission to seamen building. There was the great centenary bridge that spanned Station and Prince's Piers. But in the wash-up, you know, some things were retained, but many, many things were lost. So the defining feature of Beacon Cove, those two beacons, the seaward and the landward beacon, which have become the defining character of Beacon Cove, were two of the landmarks that were kept. And there are the Swallow and Aerial Biscuit Factory was an early example of adaptive reuse. And that was skillfully done in the sense that the Buxtons who did that development, they sacrificed, I suppose you could say, the Art Deco frontage to the seafront in favour of retaining the Victorian era heritage at the back. So they got the sea views and the greater yield, but in return there was a retention of some beautiful heritage buildings. I suppose if that development was was occurring today, they would have kept quite different things in terms Indeed. of the Art Deco. I think you're so right. I mean, there were advocates for Art Deco even at that time. The Mission to Seaman building was built by Harry Norris, who may be aware of other work that he did. We were talking about modernism when we came in. The Missions to Seamen was a very austere, plain brick building. And it just wasn't the aesthetic of the 80s. You know, the 80s was, you know, they did not value that. And so sadly, that building was sacrificed. But even though people fought really, really hard to keep it. And I think today with the new depreciation of modernist buildings, Art Deco, but also post-war modernist yes. buildings as well and also industrial places which it, make up Port Melbourne. Mm. But, and it makes me think about borders too. Borders, yeah. The yep. border of Port Melbourne to South Melbourne and mm. South Melbourne being one of the first suburbs in Melbourne that received heritage protections. Yes, that's such an interesting question because I'm, like you, very interested in the role that citizens play in the whole debate. And um, there was a group of activists in South Melbourne, as you're suggesting, who got together and got those first urban conservation studies done. And we were later in Port Melbourne. And that actually led to a lot of Port Melbourne's housing stock not being as well preserved as in South Melbourne. But um, there was, and it seems crazy now, but there was a very, very sharply defined boundary between Port and South. You know, there was South and there was Port and there was deep gutted road between them. Which road is, which road is Pickle that? Street, Pickle Street, and then Boundary Street, Boundary Street, and it was very bounded. And, you know, those differences mean very little to people today. But in as you suggest, you know, Port and South had quite different evolutions and they operated quite independently, although becoming more cooperative in the 80s. Do you think there was a turning point at that, at that time where there started to be, a, I suppose, a bleed or kind of an integration of Port Melbourne to South Melbourne, where that boundary road was, in a sense, overcome. 
Well, not really. I think what made that change was the amalgamation of councils in the 90s because that led to the blurring of the boundaries and us coming together awkwardly at times, but now more happily into the city of Port Phillip. But this becomes relevant that the Boundary Street, which we've referred to, is now included in the Fisherman's Bend urban renewal area, part of it. And so that's a new area where that boundary plays out. That's a, that's very interesting mm. in, in terms of thinking about municipal politics mm. and municipal boundaries as, as actually breaking down silos and, break, and mm. actually reintegrating communities as well, yes. even when that happens forcefully from above under Kenneth's reforms. Yes, and uh, at the time, no one welcomed it at all, and Port Melbourne bitterly resisted the amalgamation. But I think in retrospect, um, it's probably seen as a positive. What groups are involved in promoting Port Melbourne's history and heritage? Well, the flagship organisation for promoting Port Melbourne's history is the Port Melbourne Historical and Preservation Society, of which I'm a member. And unusually among historical societies, we're a very thriving society. Many societies are losing members, we're gaining them. And I think part of the, the reason for that is it's a very sociable historical society and people enjoy being part of it. But then we do have the history obsessives of which I'm one and we dig and delve under rocks and stones for any uncovered aspect of Port Melbourne's history. I think those are the sorts of people we love having in the My, <laughs> in the My Marvelous Melbourne studio as well. Mm. And I suppose that the, these groups are what are kind of pushing for the heritage protections as well to maintain both fabric and stories in the landscape? Well, I think that the the heyday for the heritage activism, and I really acknowledge the woman from whom I've learned everything I know about Port Melbourne, um, Pat Granger, she was an early activist. She's in her 80s now, but she put her whole life really towards um, preservation of various aspects of Port Melbourne's heritage. But we're like in a second wave now that now Port Melbourne's become so popular, so expensive. It means that um, heritage is not valued in the way it was. And we're seeing, you know, if it's a contributory heritage building, you may as well say goodbye. And so we're getting like this little heritage pocket where the heritage controls are strong, but outside of that, we're just losing buildings hand over fist. We need more integrated approaches to heritage. I agree. That's what I would say. Yes. Can you share a story about a, a present or, or past place in Port Melbourne that has shaped the suburb's development? I can't go past James the Sandridge Lagoon. <laughs> when we moved to Port Melbourne, we moved into a street called Esplanade West. And everybody used to say, but this Esplanade does not run along the beachfront. How is this so? And gradually I began to learn about the story of the Sandridge Lagoon, this long tapering lagoon that ran from the beach right up to the north of Port Melbourne. And it started off as an Eden-like place full of cockatoos and plovers and fish 
But do I need to tell you that it wasn't long before it just became the most foully degraded and despoiled place to the extent that it became so stinky and awful that all people wanted to do was fill it in. So for at least three decades, the politics of Port Melbourne were consumed with the desire to resolve the lagoon question. And that was finally done by the early 1900s. And now that's given us some of the most lovely parkland in Port Melbourne. That's in a nutshell. <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> So the water of the former lagoon irrigates the parkland? No, no. What happened was, um, you know, Emerald Hill was the high point in our area, a former volcanic cone, Emerald Hill, and all the waste from the higher ground made its way down the hill through the curb, well, there were no curbs and channels then, into the Sandridge Lagoon. And so that the lagoon has really been replaced by a series of vast underground stormwater drainage um, pipes, and the stormwater is then pumped out into Port Phillip Bay. And that pumping station, very beautiful building, is right opposite where I live. And that's your personal connection as well to this Definitely. Story. And every time it rains the pumping station kicks into gear. So it it's, continues to play a role in preventing flooding in Port Melbourne today. Finally, uh, where can we learn a little bit more about Port Places, Janet? Oh, well, the Historical Society also has a website, pmhps.org.au. And what I love about that website is that stories accrete you know, you put one story and then people add and add and they grow in that way. But my website is Port Places and I like to, you know, ground everything in history and in the past, take it through the present and, you know, talk about planning for the future, that whole continuum. I, I strongly endorse following Janet and Port Places on Twitter <laughs> and all the social media networks. Um and I just wanted to thank you, Janet, for sharing your stories about, about Port Melbourne, uh, for Melbourne A to Z, and for My Marvellous Melbourne. Thank you, James. <laughs> My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources, and contact details at our website, mymarvelousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you.